So being aware of why we're doing the things that we're doing, that happens at the micro level, and it also happens at the macro level. By micro, I really mean, you know, what are the specific activities that are occupying your time? Um, you can look at your calendar to see that with crystal clarity. Um, and the tactics that you're employing within those activities toward the goals and objectives that are important to you. But then the macro level is like, what are you working toward in the long term? You know, what game are you actually playing? And it, and it brings up this quote that um, kind of rings in my mind, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So, you know, we got to choose the things that we are working on or devoting our energy and our attention and our focus to because otherwise we can find ourselves having progressed in something that really doesn't matter to us. Welcome to A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Wong. This podcast is dedicated to lighting the way towards greater inner peace and purpose. My own journey has taken me from a decade-long corporate finance career to following my own path as a purpose coach. I help people move from an unfulfilling career to a meaningful and purpose-driven career in life. Now let's dive into today's show. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Huang. And today's episode, I am so excited to be talking with Henry Winslow. Henry was the, the host of Dharma Talk, which I often see as kind of the predecessor of this podcast. I like to think I'm following in his footsteps. And so it was a real honor to be able to spend some time with Henry and be able to talk through so many parts of his journey. You know, he is an incredible yogi, being able to dive into how it was that he created Dharma Talk and some of the learnings that he gained from talking all about Dharma in 108 episodes. Also being able to share a lot about his new latest project, with, which is Tricycle Day, which talks about psychedelics. And so it was really great being able to talk about that journey and, and really honing in on Dharma, right? This idea that Dharma really encompasses our entire journey, right? Like it is not that we are aiming solely for the destination. It's not like Dharma is only the end result, but instead it is the journey that gets us there as well. And so it was such a pleasure to be able to talk with Henry about all of that. So I hope you'll tune in and enjoy this episode. And before we dive in, I want to briefly talk through a few announcements. So again, thank you so much to all of you who are listening to this episode right now. You know, it, it is such a joy to see that people are resonating with the so much of the amazing wisdom that's being shared in the show. And if you do really love the show, it would really mean a lot to me if you would um, go to my website, jessicahuangcoaching.com slash donate and donate to the podcast and help me fund all the effort that goes behind the scenes um, to make these this show happen. And also, I want to share that if you are someone who is feeling kind of stuck and trying to figure out what how your purpose is meant to be in your life and, you know, trying to follow the path of your dharma, I invite you to schedule a free dream job discovery session with me. 
and explore what it would look like to coach with me. Just to give a little bit of background, the coaching is really something where I like to think of it as almost like unlocking your potential. You know, I see it as we all already have everything within us to do to make all of our dreams come true. And coaching is just a means of helping you unlock that potential. And so if that is something of interest to you, please go to my website, jessicahuangcoaching.com and book a free dream job discovery session with me. Also, as I mentioned before, so Sundays, I teach Dharma Yoga at Dharma Yoga Center and also on Zoom. So whether or not you're in New York City, I invite you to come and practice with me and can message me on Instagram. And I would love to have you as my guest for a class. So I would love to connect with all of you, either through coaching, through yoga, through any means. Um, please reach out. It is such an honor to be able to talk with all of you and and um, share with you so much of the, these beautiful conversations that I get to have. And so thank you again for listening. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Henry Winslow. Our guest today is Henry Winslow. Henry is a yoga instructor. He is the 2018 winner of the World Yoga Asana Championships in Beijing. He is the host of the Dharma Talk podcast, and his latest project is Tricycle Day, a free twice-weekly newsletter covering psychedelics, science, business, and policy. He is currently based in Austin, Texas. So welcome to the show, Henry. Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, Jessica. Yeah, I am so excited for you to be on the show today. I So Henry, it's funny, I feel like I have been trying to find Henry. Like it was kind of like a where where's Waldo for me, where I had always been curious about Henry Winslow because he was the host of Dharma Talk and is also a Dharma yogi, which is uh, the lineage that we follow from Sri Dharma Mitra. And so it was like this uh, kind of figure that was like around where I was like, where in the world is Henry Winslow these days, you know, um, after the podcast had ended and starting up my own podcast. And I guess funny, a funny little series of events happened where Henry sent out a newsletter to his uh, his newsletter list. And a friend of mine was like, oh, I got an email from Henry. And so I happened to take that email and decide to reach out to him and see what happens. And I was very, very excited when Henry replied and we got to connect a few weeks ago. So I am so excited for this conversation with Henry today. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. Yeah, yeah, of course. And um, I just want to say that I wasn't intentionally trying to evade being found by anyone. Uh, not trying to live a clandestine lifestyle or anything like that. It's just that um, a lot of things changed, you know, in that period of time uh, after I left New York, which was in late 2019, just before COVID. Um, and then I wound up in LA, was teaching there for a little bit, but obviously things kind of went sideways with virtual teaching. Um, so I appreciate you reaching out and, you know, I responded right away and I'm excited to to share a little bit about what's going on and what I've learned over the years from yoga and other pursuits. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So Henry, I would love to get started with talking about a little bit about Dharma and purpose. You know, I, I often see this podcast as almost like a continuation from what you were doing with Dharma Talk, right? Where it was all about Dharma. I, I've kind of switched it to using the word purpose. But I would love to hear your thoughts on like, what does purpose and Dharma really mean to you? Yeah, um, it's a question that I ask every single one of my guests on Dharma Talk, and I heard a lot of different answers, which, you know, I think with any sort of profound question, you're going to get a lot of variability and answers and, and all the great questions in life cannot be answered definitively. But I will say that for me, purpose really comes down to being acutely aware of why you are doing the things that you're doing. Mm. And there, you know, I can make expand upon that. I mean, but really it comes down to time being our most precious resource. Um, and it's truly the only one that's finite. Um, everything else is renewable. And for that reason, I believe we need to be extremely considerate of how we use it. So being aware of why we're doing the things that we're doing, that happens at the micro level. And it also happens at the macro level. By micro, I really mean you know, what are the specific activities that are occupying your time? Um, you can look at your calendar to see that with crystal clarity um, and the tactics that you're employing within those activities toward the goals and objectives that are important to you. But then the macro level is like, what are you working toward in the long term? You know, what game are you actually playing? And it, and it brings up this quote that um, kind of rings in my mind play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So, you know, we got to choose the things that we are working on or devoting our energy and our attention and our focus to, because otherwise we can find ourselves having progressed in something that really doesn't matter to us. And the other thing I'll say about all of this is that, you know, it requires constant recalibration. Habits can be adaptive, they can be maladaptive, um, but if we're in a routine that no longer serves our priorities in life, then it's it's time to change them, okay? Um, so just because something was in line with your why before doesn't necessarily mean it's in line with your why now. And that kind of speaks to my own personal experience and, and what we were just talking about, me disappearing off the face of the earth. I've just had a lot of shifts in my life and that caused me to reflect on the ways I was spending my time, be it on Instagram or hosting a podcast and realigning my activities with my new whys. Mm. I love that. I love that answer in terms of the whole like microcosm versus macrocosm, because it's true. It's like, you know, I think we kind of need to reflect on both aspects, right? It's, there's this quote around the, like around habit formation, right? And the fact that like, uh, excellence is is not um, is not an act, but a habit. It's all the little things that we do every day, and and so I think that definitely goes in to, in line with what you were talking about right there. But then it's true, like that bigger goal is also so incredibly important, so that you're kind of working your way towards something that feels in alignment with who you are, right? And um, something that this is reminding me of is, I, so I was listening to some of your podcast prior to this, and I had mentioned this, um, you had talked about, you know, there's all these terminology around purpose, you know, you have Dharma, and then you have Ikigai as one of them. And, and so 
in that bit that I was listening to you talk about it, you were talking about the differences. So I was wondering if you could take a little time and explain a little bit of what you've learned about these different terms and um, mm. and what the, they mean. Okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try my best. I may miss some of the details here, but I think the, the broader point will still stand. Really, I mean, it speaks to the cultural, the cultures from which those concepts came from. Mm. So Ikigai is a Japanese concept. Dharma, as we know, is sort of a Vedic, um, you know, Indian, uh, ancient Indian principle. And both of them could be sort of translated to purpose if you're looking for, you know, Western uh, corollary. But Ikigai is actually meant as a framework to find um a vocation in life mm. and it's essentially like the, there's a visualization of it where you have like a venn diagram of four different circles and your ikigai is the overlap of the dead center where all four check boxes are met and this is where i might mess it up but they're like they're four different uh circles one of them is you know the thing that brings you joy thing that you're good at uh something that society needs and then something you can be paid for yeah i believe those are the four yeah um, so it's just a very specific way of like, it's a path toward finding that activity or job or career or just pursuit that you might want to devote your time to. Whereas with Dharma, Dharma is a much broader encompassing term. In my view, it has a lot to do with purpose and the roles that we are meant to play in life. But to me, Dharma also implies the process of one's journey unfolding and all of the necessary evolution that comes with that. Mm, yeah, I love that. And so along those lines, when we talk about Dharma, like one of the things that you had mentioned to me when we had our first talk was you feel like your Dharma has kind of like shifted and transformed over time. So can you talk a little bit about what that journey has looked like for you? Sure. Well, to be clear, I think that everyone's dharma shifts over over the course of time, over the course of a life, um, which is why I, I spoke about recalibrating one's purpose around one's priorities. So for me, there's been a lot that's changed, but the first thing that comes to mind right away is becoming a father. I think anybody in the audience who's listening who is a parent, uh, whether that's a fresh experience or something that happened 20, 30 years ago, will relate to that because it completely turns your priorities in life upside down. And like I was saying before, when your priorities change, inevitably your activities and ways of spending time will need to change to accommodate those things. So that's a big one for me. Uh, there's some obvious ways that it's influenced my day to day. You know, it changes the, your wake up time and uh, the fact that you can't just go and do your work. You might need to look out for a young crying human. But it's more than just the practical bits. It also changes the motivations behind why you choose to do certain things. For example, before uh, I used to only really have to think about myself and my wife. And it was just the two of us against the world or working with the world, however, whatever you want to think about that relationship. But now I think about my family and taking care of another person adjusts my risk tolerance for certain things, whether that's, you know, personal thrill seeking or 
the chances that I take in my work. Uh, it's really important to be secure and stable. That didn't necessarily used to have to factor in quite as much, which is why I was able to do kind of wild and crazy things like live without a home address for six months at a time and go teach workshops at different studios in Europe and live at the like couch surf uh, at the studio owner's house. That doesn't really fit into my life now. And, you know, it's not good or bad. These are just different stages of life. And to me, that's the evolutionary component of Dharma. Mm. And so for you, I, I know that you originally actually started in like a corporate career, right? And then kind of moved into being more entrepreneurial, I suppose is the word. So like, what was that transition like for you? Uh, yeah, I did start my professional career in the more straight and narrow um, get a job path. But I will say I've had little twinges of entrepreneurial spirit in my life since I was a child. Mm. I remember my, my first business when I was, I think I was seven or eight years old. My family used to go to this house in the mountains of Virginia where you could ski. But in the summer, it was also a, like a golf club place. We weren't golfers. We didn't belong to the golf uh, club. But the house where we stayed was right on the 18th hole. So after a long bout of golf, many of the golfers who came through would be tired. Uh, and if they weren't amazing, they probably lost a lot of their balls. So what I would do is go into the woods and collect all the ones that had gone astray, clean them off, and then sell them back to the golfers for three for a dollar. 50 cents wow. for three for a dollar. You got to give them the, the deal. Oh my God. I love that. I love yeah. that. Um, but your, your original question was, how did I go from, how did I transition from a more traditional job into entrepreneurship? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it really started after I had been working for a few years. And for the first time in my life, there was not an immediate next step that I was working toward. Mm. And I think a lot of people can relate to this, particularly like type A kind of people who are motivated by external validation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's kind of the case for me, but same. <laughs> um, it's something that we're all working yeah. on, right? Uh, yeah, after, you know, school, it's like you try to get good grades so you get into a good college. Then in college, you get to do well so that you can um, get a good job. And then once you get in the job, it's kind of like, okay, what's next? Yes, you are maybe working toward promotion or a raise, but ultimately it's more of the same. And being faced with that was kind of scary to me because I thought, I don't know if I want to be doing this in mm -hmm. five years from now. Everything else is like four-year segments, right? You can, mm -hmm. Anybody can put up with four years, but I thought, what is the end game here? And so it really caused me to think about what are some unconventional ways that I could choose to design my life that would be more in line with what would fulfill me or make me feel happy. So I started experimenting with side businesses. I didn't, you know, take that, like kind of jump out of the plane and build the parachute on the way down approach. That's never really been my style. But I had a lot of experiments with side hustles and businesses and learned a lot. Um, had a lot of fun with it too, because the pressure was some taken off by the fact that I was making money from a regular job, but I learned about e-commerce. I learned about, uh, running social media ads 
ended up doing that as like a one person agency for some businesses for a time. Um, and I also just learned about the fact that you can build a business around basically anything. Mm. My first successful business, uh, you know, successful is a subjective term, but to me it was a success, was I made a company where I was selling home brewing accessories for kombucha brewers. Mm. Like that was some, I invented my own category. Obviously, kombucha is a category that exists, and it was something that I became interested in. I was loving drinking kombucha, and I wanted to make my own at home. But I found that it was kind of difficult to control for the temperature, and this was a big part of the fermentation process. So I thought, like, okay, can I buy something that kind of controls the environment? And it didn't exist. So I looked up basically how to do that and started working with a manufacturer in China. I private labeled it. I made some design tweaks, some branding tweaks, and was selling it on Amazon. And actually, for a while, I was living off of that income. Wow. Um, so that was kind of my first win with entrepreneurship. And I and it just wet my appetite for more. And I'm curious, like during all of this, like when did kind of yoga come into the picture for you? Yoga came into the picture for me the summer in between my junior and senior year of college, I came to New York, New York City, and was living there for an internship at an advertising agency. And my friend and roommate, who was a couple of years ahead of me, we had been friends in college, but now he lived in New York. He brought me to my first yoga class. I went to yoga to the people at St. Mark's um, on the Lower East or on the East Village. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I loved everything about it. I loved the physicality. I loved the acrobatic nature of it. I loved being able to try to do new tricks. I know that that's not the most yogic thing to say, but it was a very motivational force for me, mm -hmm. especially in the beginning. Uh, and I also loved that it felt like it was a form of care for myself um, compared to, you know, you can do tricks in gymnastics or, or or diving, which was my background, springboard diving. That's where I kind of like first had a taste of acrobatics. But yoga was different because it was about taking care of yourself. And, and that was immediately apparent to me from my very first class. So when I came back to New York, after I graduated college and had a job in New York City, yoga was non-negotiable for me. My, a lot of my friends just didn't understand, but I so highly valued my yoga practice, even having only practiced for a little while that I committed to going every single day at 6.30 a.m. because I knew that was the only way I could make my practice given a corporate working lifestyle. Hmm. Interesting. So do you feel like that, do you feel like yoga influenced you to kind of move off of the beaten path or how do you feel like that kind of weighed in to you kind of going into the entrepreneurial side of life? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely took some major lessons, life lessons that extended outside of the yoga mat, outside of the yoga studio from my practice. I think the one that is most on the nose here for your question is, is something that I try to remind myself regularly, which is never to place um, false limiting beliefs upon myself. And I learned that in a very palpable, like tangible way from yoga, because I remember when I first got into kind of more advanced asana practice, and I was invited to an advanced class uh, in the Bikram tradition, which is like, you know, the 84 asanas, mm -hmm. uh, which at the time was not a class that was advertised on the schedule of any of these mm -hmm. studios. It was something that you had to be hand selected and told, okay, you're in. 
So I went to that and I was practicing next to a couple of guys who are now, I consider to be friends, uh, Joseph Insinia and Jared McCann. But at the time they were just iconic yoga, New York celebrities. And the two of them were doing side-by-side handstand scorpions at the end of class after two and a half hours, mind you, of hot and sweaty yoga. And I just thought, wow, first of all, I didn't even know that that position was possible from the human anatomy. And second of all, wow, I want to do that. Mm. And I didn't think I can't do that. I thought they can do that. Therefore, it's possible for me to do that. And, and I'm not saying that because it's like, it's always been that way for me. That was a unique response for me within the context of yoga. So my takeaway from that was, hey, why don't I apply that mindset to everything else? Oh, I love that. And it's not always easy to do that, but there's a reminder there that I can sort of play in my head as a mantra. Somebody else did it. It's possible to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think, um, yeah, that's definitely something I can relate to completely. I feel like, you know, seeing like you do Dharma talk and things along those lines, I'm like, well, why not? Why not me is kind of, I guess, the question that we have for ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm curious then, what actually inspired you to start the Dharma Talk podcast then? I just got really into podcasts. Um, I became a, a very avid podcast listener. Uh, I can't remember. I couldn't tell you what I was listening to at the time. You know, I've kind of shifted my my cue around. Mm-hmm. But pro- most likely, you know, I've been listening to Tim Ferriss' show for a really long time. I love Rich Roll's podcast too. Um, kind of, they're both long form, but you know, there were other podcasts I was listening to that were around like the hour mark. And I found that I could not find a yoga podcast that really spoke to me. There were a couple mm. that existed and I listened to them, but they, for what for one reason or another, just didn't hit the mark for me. And I thought I can do this. I would love to have conversations around topics that are of interest to me, kind of fuel my own curiosity and feed my curiosity through a platform that is publicly shareable. And we'll see if other people like it, but if they don't, at least it'll be fun for me. And that's kind of been a refrain for me for a lot of my entrepreneurial creative endeavors. Like how can I choose to do something that even if it completely fails by external metrics, I still win because for whatever reason, it it was valuable to me. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. So what do you feel like, you know, having been asking about Dharma and having all these different conversations, like, what do you feel like were kind of the gifts that you really got from doing the Dharma Talk podcast? Mm, The gifts. Well, the biggest one, and it's the kind of the most obvious, simplest one is just human connection, getting to have uh, a structure and an accountability mechanism to have non-superficial like actual substantive conversations with people on a regular basis, especially people that I admired. Like that was cool. I had a reason to to like cold email somebody who was a role model for me in the yoga world and say, hey, I have this podcast that reaches, I don't know how many people, you know, I knew at the time, but I don't know now. Would you be interested in coming on and having this conversation with me? And more often than not, they would say yes and be grateful for the opportunity. So there's something really special about having a distribution channel uh, that is valuable to other people to open doors for you and give you a seat at the table. Mm. That was probably the biggest thing I got from it. 
Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I, I think it's it's such an interesting um, platform because it, it's I like to think of it as like I get to have really cool conversations with people and then a lot of like other people just happen to listen in on it. <laughs> yeah. And that, that produces the best content, to be honest with you. If you're overly focused on other people and what they want to hear, it you lose the thread of genuine enthusiasm and curiosity. And that's what people want to hear. They just want to be a fly on the wall and listen to a, an honest conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So to go back a little bit to your journey, though. So it sounds like you kind of you went from this whole advertising thing. You came, you came into like more of an entrepreneurial lifestyle. And then it sounds like you were doing a lot of movement and all kinds of things. But I guess like what has what has it been like in terms of like, how did you kind of look at sculpting that like micro and macro that you were talking about earlier? How did that formulate for you? You mean that as a mental model or my specific choices within it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to explore like, how did you make your own choices through thinking through like your Dharma? Well, um, like I said before, it's, it's something that I have to constantly revisit because my outside environment, my outside context changes. But maybe it would help to think about like a specific decision that I made and, and pass it through that. Yeah. Okay, here's an interesting one. When COVID happened, that was a big shift. You know, that was kind of an inflection point in my life. So I had just moved to LA, actually had just gotten into my apartment the second or third week of March, 2020. So literally like days before the world shut down. Yeah. Um, so I'm in a new place. I don't really have a network here. I mean, somewhat from Instagram and online, but I had lived in New York for many years before that and was not connected to any studios. Then all of a sudden the studios have their own problems. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm, I'm making a living entirely off of yoga at this point, I better figure out something. So among my friends, I was... I think the first, if not the first, one of the first in my network to stand up online yoga classes. Of course, everybody got there eventually, but in the beginning, it, it wasn't necessarily clear that that was the direction people were going to need to go. And if so, how you would even do it. But um, that entrepreneurial spirit, that kind of like ability to, to operate in zones of uncertainty really supported me there. So right after the studio shut down, I said, I've got an email list. I've got a website. I've got Instagram. I know how to use Zoom. I know, I know how to use Venmo. I'm going to do some classes. And we'll see if anybody comes. But I advertised them. I promoted them on Instagram and through my email list. And I said, these classes are free. Everybody's going through something right now. I just want to be of service. If you come to this class, you don't owe me anything. But if you want, you're welcome to make a donation to support me. No, no problem if that's not possible for you. And I taught three classes that week, that first week of doing online classes. And I made way, way more money than I had ever made in a week of teaching classes for studios in person in New York or anywhere else. Wow. And that was a light bulb moment for me uh, because I, I put the pieces together and intuitively it made sense. The unit economics just worked out a lot more. Not only could students pay less, but I took home more because I was not sharing my revenue with 
the management of a studio or all of the overhead costs of a studio, renting the physical space, particularly in an expensive real estate place like New York. Um, so it just made a lot of sense. And I realized that also many other yoga teachers would have either apprehension or just like knowledge gaps and being able to do the same for themselves. And that was the seed of the idea that became a little project that I started with a friend of mine, a software engineer called Coolerize. And the whole promise of Coolerize was as a yoga teacher, you can stand up your own virtual yoga studio with no engineering background, no code, nothing like that. Uh, and you can do it in like 10 minutes. And so we built that, we took it from like zero to one and then ended up deciding we wanted to do other things. So we sold it to another entrepreneur who had experience in the video space. So that was a, an interesting experience for me in terms of purpose and that micro and macro, because it shifted a lot of the things that I was doing. Um, it was motivated by a sense of purpose that checked a lot of boxes for me. One was, how do I get out of this situation that I'm in where I can't teach? Two is, how can I do something that actually scales and impacts more people than just my students? And this became a way to serve other yoga teachers, which was something that was really exciting and energizing for me. And then at the micro level, it actually, it, it was not something that I came to right away, but after some time, I realized that if I really wanted to focus on this as my mission, then I was gonna have to change uh, some of the other things that I was doing. So I eventually stopped teaching so much and focused mm -hmm. on building this business. And that's not something I would have foreseen at the very beginning, but as my priorities shifted and my goals changed, I had to change my behaviors to match. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I love something that you mentioned there is being of service. And so I feel like that's an, to me, like that's an integral part of all this, but I'm curious like to you, like how important has it been to be of service through all of the kind of twists and turns that you've taken over the course of your career? Yeah, I mean, well, it, it kind of always has to be first, right? Otherwise, nothing you do, at least in a business, from a business standpoint, if it's not of service to someone, then no one will value it. So it won't succeed as a business. I think it's pretty easy sometimes for people to demonize like capitalism and business, but companies make money because people see value in what they're doing. Um, that could be a product, it could be a service, it could be any number of things, but they wouldn't part with their money that they didn't associate value with the thing that they were getting in return. So I really think that service, like just fundamentally, is at the the foundation, <laughs> hence fundamental, uh, of any sort of business. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I'm curious how like the whole um, being part of the World Yoga Asana Championships like plays into your story. Like, how did that come about? Well, it came about the same way that that advanced yoga class came about. In the Bikram community, in the, in the Bikram scene, at least at the time, there was a lot of excitement around asana competitions. The first thing that people say when they hear that without much uh, context is, what, yoga competition? Yoga isn't a competition, it's an inward journey. And to that, I say, yes, you're absolutely right. However, asana as a specific focus discipline can be competitive. It is considered a sport and it's not something that the U.S. invented or 
you know, twisted or bastardized. It came from India and those competitions still happen there. Now, that being said, that out of the way, in the Bikram tradition, it was very popular because uh, Bikram and his wife, Rajasri, uh, started this organization, a nonprofit organization called USA Yoga. And their goal was to make yoga into an Olympic sport so that it would be something that was appealing and attractive to America's youth. And their reason for that was, hey, look, you know, sports are obviously something that build a lot of character, discipline. There are a lot of positive attributes that come out of participating in youth sports. But yoga is uniquely, you know, capable of inspiring this sort of uh, mental health benefit and uh, a deeper spiritual connection that kind of gets Trojan horse into it through the sport. So they had great intentions behind that, I think. And the competitions were super fun. It gave people another reason to be motivated in their practice, gives you kind of a lighthouse to work toward. And I got into it. I did the, the yoga competitions for five years before I actually became the international champion. And I struggled a lot. And I think that was a big part of why it was so important to me, in fact, because I did pretty well with my yoga practice and my physical ability early on. You know, it's not like I came into my yoga practice with the ability that I have now, but, you know, I was a quick study and I got, I got pretty capable pretty quickly, but I struggled for many years of the competitions because it felt like when I got on stage, I became a completely different person. Mm. I would shake. I would just got so nervous and it wasn't even a mental nervousness. It was a physical nervousness through my nadis, like through my nervous system channels where I just could not control my body with the same level of intention and integrity that I could in a regular practice. And something about that challenge just really hooked me. And I was determined to overcome this, this limitation that I perceived in myself. And I'll tell you that the day that I finally took home the, the gold medal in Beijing was the day that I truly, and not I'm not just lying to myself, which I tried to do many times, I truly gave up on caring. Mm. Like I wanted to win. I wanted yeah. to win, but I, I stopped trying to be the best. Every time I would go up on stage, I had so much pressure on myself to do something extraordinary. And I just realized I've put in the work. It's time to just let it ride. Let it, let the practice flow through me. So I'm in the green room behind stage. Everybody else is running the routine for the 30th time, just trying to like max out every possible finesse point. I just laid on the ground. I just took a yoga nidra for the entire time I was there. They called my name. I almost missed it. Somebody shook me. I went up on stage. Boom. Nailed it done. Wow. That's fascinating. So right before like actually winning, you had kind of like released yourself of, of whether or not you won in a way. I love that. I think that's so interesting, right? It's um, the surrender of it. It's kind exactly. of what it sounds like. That's exactly right. It is the surrender of it. And it's not a surrender that you haven't earned. It's a surrender after doing the work. You do the mm. discipline to a point and then you let the results be an indirect outcome of that. Yeah. You can't control that part. And that's another lesson I've taken away from my yoga practice, actually. Um, speaking of goals and um, 
and choosing your purpose and your why, I think it's really important to be conscientious about how you select your goals. For me, I've learned that choosing a goal around an outcome is pointless and can be actually counterproductive. It's very much more beneficial, healthy, and fruitful to choose a goal that has to do with the actual steps that you take. So, you know, right now I'm working on my newsletter, for example, so we can apply it to that. It could be tempting to set a goal like, my goal is to have 100,000 subscribers on my newsletter, but I don't have direct control over that. That is an indirect consequence of the action that I can put in. So it's much better, it's the set of actions I can take that is most likely to produce that outcome. If I set a goal that goes more like, I will publish my newsletter on Wednesday and Sunday every week for one year. Yeah. So it's the journey rather than that, like intangible, like end result that you can't control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And people always say that in yoga, like focus on the journey and not the destination, but there's often a cognitive dissonance there. I've noticed where you'll say that, but you have to walk the walk too. And attaching your sense of happiness or accomplishment or achievement or to a goal that is you know, somewhat outside of your control is just a recipe for being in that state of desire forever. I'd rather live a life where I'm continually uh, meeting my goal every day. Uh, I, I met my goal today because I showed up. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's so important because it's true. Like, especially I feel like in yoga class, it's like we are naturally just playing a comparison game because you're you're just in a room full of yogis, right? Let's say, and it's like, well, so-and-so can do that pose and you're trying to get there and then you're comparing yourself and saying like, oh, I'm not as good. Mm -hmm. And instead, like, I, yeah, it's often like, how can you turn that kind of mental chatter around and like respecting where you are in your journey right now? Like, yes, you want to get there, but like appreciating where you are today, right? Yeah, yeah, because you, you can't get there if you're not enjoying it along the way. Uh, that was, a, it was easy for me with yoga because I loved practicing. Like I genuinely wanted to be there every single day and I was upset if I missed class. You know, like I never was looking forward 10 years into my practice and saying, well, you know, if I can just show up to my practice, then maybe I'll win the International Yoga Sport Federation Championships. No, first of all, I didn't even know about that. And second of all, I wouldn't have cared. It was about being there and having those little moments of victory. And oh my God, I held my, my, my balance and standing head to knee today. Yes. I'm going to try that again in the next set. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. No, I, I, that's what I always love is like the ability to take these, like these learnings from our practice and then bring them into our regular lives, which it sounds like it is, was a lot of your journey, right? Totally. Yeah. And I think the nice thing about my journey that kind of set me up well, is that a lot of these lessons were really easy for me to learn in yoga. They just happen naturally. I didn't have to like force my way into them. So now when I'm approaching other aspects of life where it isn't quite as easy to implement those lessons, I can remind myself by looking at my yoga practice. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was actually curious for, to you, like, um, you know, because you have like very deep backbends in this in incredible practice. Like, do you feel like it was just 
like the regular practice that helped you get get there? Like, did you deal with like injuries or like, what was that kind of journey like to becoming to that level? It was because I just loved it so, so much. Of course, you know, we all have different anatomical predispositions. I'm sure that my body was like built to become flexible. Uh, so I, I don't want to discount that. But the the truth is that I genuinely love to practice. And there were, you know, within a couple of months of starting my practice after moving to New York, I said, I'm going to do a 365 day challenge. And I did it without batting an eye. I I was traveling. You know, I there were many times where I did multiple classes in a day and it wasn't to make up for missed days like that didn't count. I just wanted to be there. So, you know, naturally, if anybody is that obsessed with something, you're going to get better. It just it just happens as a natural byproduct. But I got into all sorts of different things to improve my back bend. I got very much into the quote unquote homework uh, by a woman named Mary Jarvis, uh, one of the original disciples of Bikram. And now she has her own sort of cult following. I would do her stuff constantly, which was very monotonous, like a lot of repeat sets of like yoga drills. Mm. Uh, so I did all of that. And yeah, and just lived, breathed and sleep yoga, like looked at people's postures on Instagram, trying to figure out, okay, how did they get that part of their upper spine to move? Okay, it has to do with the breath and the inhale and just, yeah, just total, totally nerded out. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that they say like it, you know, like if you do anything for like a thousand hours or something, like you become some level of expert at it, right? Like just I think it's 10,000. 10,000. That's actually the stat. (laughs) Is that the quote? (laughs) Right. So it sounds like you put in your, I I don't know how many hours of yoga you put in, but gotta be at least (laughs) 10,000. Right. So, so that by, na- by nature kind of leads you to, to really improving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, do you feel like, do you feel like the things that you have kind of put towards in terms of your purpose, is that because you love them so much? Is that kind of what has led you down the path? Would you say? I would say that that has become one of the uh, essentials for me. And, and whether I choose to put my heart into something, I got to really love it because I just, at this point, I realize how much of a disadvantage you have if you don't, because mm-hmm. there's somebody else out there. Let's talk about com- competitive spirit. There's somebody else out there who loves it and you don't have a chance against that person if you don't. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that's true. It's like when you love it, you will put so much more effort into what yeah. you're doing. Right. No, it's not the only thing I consider. Especially now, you know, after being a dad, I was kind of talking about that before, all mm-hmm. the other factors you have to consider. Um, supporting my family is is really important now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like that balancing act of all these different, I guess, inputs to like figuring out what you really want to be doing. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that the more of the check boxes that you can check, whether it's those four things from the Ikigai or your own personal set of criteria, the more that you can check, the more confident you can feel that you are on the right track and you're pursuing the right force in your life aligned to your purpose. Hmm. 
Do you feel like certain skills have been like integral in like the things that you have pursued? Like obviously with like yoga, it sounds like, you know, the the physicality of it was very natural to you and in, in, in that way. But do you feel like that has um, like certain skills have really been important as you've grown into the different things that you've done? Yeah, another one that comes from yoga. Well, maybe it's not fair to say that it comes from yoga, but that it was very much cultivated by the yoga practice is the skill of focus. Mm. It's increasingly rare these days. There are many forces at play in the world that want to distract you. So being able to hone your focus and maintain focus, no matter what it is that you're directing that focus toward, gives you a huge advantage over most people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you then, like, what made you decide to start your current newsletter around psychedelics then? I'm assuming that is something of a passion project as well. It is. Yeah. I go, I, I choose very um, profound topics, I guess, between from yoga to psychedelics. For me, I think probably this is true for anyone who's doing anything professional in the psychedelic space. It started from having a very powerful personal experience. And I'll start by saying that psychedelics are incredibly powerful tools and should not be taken lightly. Uh, if you are considering trying them and you never have, I, I would definitely urge you to do sufficient research to understand the risks involved before diving willy-nilly in. That being said, I was not somebody growing up who had much of an affinity for recreational drugs. Sure, I smoked pot here and there. Yes, I drank alcohol, um, but I was not like a raver or anything like that and had very little experience with pretty much anything else until my yoga practice. Mm. And my entry into psychedelics was very much through the esoteric philosophical doorway. I had been doing a lot of reading in, in yoga because, as we discussed before, asana is just the tip of the iceberg. And I was coming across these topics like cognitive absorption and non-dual uh, states. And if you read, you know, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the final stage of yoga, the real goal of this whole practice is something called samadhi, which is described as basically your consciousness being dissolved into the unity of the universe, of, of the oneness of all that is. And to me, that was a very intriguing idea, but something that I sort of resigned myself to only grapple with intellectually in this lifetime. I'm a modern man living in New York at the time. I got a job, uh, even if it is being a full-time yoga teacher, I got a job, I'm a householder. I don't have the luxury of removing myself from worldly possessions and becoming a renunciate and experiencing the, you know, the, the goal of consciousness. But it was still something that I was interested in. Then one of my friends from the yoga community basically pitched a psychedelic ceremony to me as a cheat code toward instantaneous samadhi. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me more. Uh, and so next thing I knew, I'm uh, in my first ceremony for something called Bufo alvarius, which is the dried venom of the Sonoran desert toad, mm. uh, which is vaporized and inhaled out of a crack pipe. Uh, 
it's something I never expected to a situation I never expected to be in. Um, but I embraced it as I do with all things that I decide to do. And it completely changed me. It was the most transformative experience of my entire life to that point. Uh, and the only thing that has rivaled it since is the birth of my son. This I learned afterward that the active compound in that venom is 5-methoxy-DMT, which is known to be the most powerful psychedelic that exists on planet Earth. Far more powerful than psilocybin, the, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms or LSD, or even the more popularly uh, available form of DMT, which is NNDMT. Very different compound, very different subjective effects. But that was my personal experience with it. It was something that is very difficult to describe, but the best thing I can say is that it did offer me samadhi. And the last cogent thought that passed through my mind before even the words, you know, disintegrated into just consciousness, unity, love, mm -hmm. where nothing else matters. This is the point of existing. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, it, it actually, it makes me emotional even to try to like describe it. So that was a very powerful experience for me. I didn't jump into doing anything with psychedelics after that, because there's a very important uh, concept, which I just sort of understood intuitively. It's not something that I was very educated on at the time, but there's an important concept called integration in, mm -hmm. in psychedelics, which is essentially the idea of giving yourself the space, time, and intention to bring the insights from your trips, from your psychedelic experiences into your life so that you actually can make lasting, sustained change for the better. So I'm glad that I didn't jump into doing anything rash after that because it was a very destabilizing experience. Mm. But at the beginning of this year, I felt called to do something interesting with psychedelics. And to me, the reason why was it felt that we were at an inflection point. I'm not sure if you've been aware of this, but it seems that you can't, you know, turn on the TV without hearing something about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. They are very much being mainstreamed right now. There's a lot of movement on the policy level. Uh, states are decriminalizing, uh, even legalizing certain psychedelics for therapy. And alongside the policy and the legislation, uh, there's a separate parallel path where certain uh, substances, namely MDMA, psilocybin leading the way are designated breakthrough therapies by the FDA. So they're being sort of fast-tracked or recognized for their immense potential to disrupt certain mental health conditions that have a sort of underwhelming standard of care for right now. So there's this decriminalization, legalization path, there's the medical path, and then there's also, of course, the spiritual and religious use, which was sort of my first impression. And there's so much talk about all this happening that to me it felt like, you know, there's information out there, but it's not really ready for everyday people. I took a little audit of what information was out there. And it, to me, it felt like you either have heavily medically dense or, you know, legally jargon laden content on the one end of the spectrum, total other end of the spectrum, you have this sort of neo-spiritual 5D consciousness woo-woo version of the content, both of which can be alienating for completely different reasons. And I felt like there was a wide open white space and opportunity for someone to come in and create education, an educational platform around psychedelic medicine that was not off-putting, that was not intimidating, 
and that was accessible, light, and dare I say it, fun. And I took that insight and I used it to create this brand, Tricycle Day. It started out as a daily newsletter, um, quickly evolved into a weekly and then bi-weekly newsletter, sort of found my cadence at that. But the voice of it is fun. It's like, I use emojis, I use memes, it's injected with humor because this is a very heavy topic mm. and it could afford to be lightened up, uh, particularly as more people are getting interested and difficult information is information that will be ignored. Mm. Yeah, I find that super interesting. Just um, now, as you explained it, I was like, oh, I can see the kind of like convergence of like, because I've also heard many things around psychedelics and in terms of like reaching samadhi. And I really appreciate what you're saying about the integration aspect, because I, I feel like that's been something I, I've like trivialized where it's like, well, you just go there and then what happens kind of thing. So, yeah. 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 The integration is for a lot of people, understandably, the hardest part. Yeah. I mean, peak experiences are beautiful. They're amazing. They're awe inspiring. But then what do you do with that? You know, there's a legendary Buddhist teacher by the name of Jack Cornfield, I believe that's his name. Mm -hmm. And he says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. And mm -hmm. I just think that is so perfectly put. We can have these incredible peak experiences, be it with psychedelics or with yoga. You can have a spontaneous ecstatic experience, a kundalini awakening perhaps with yoga. But then what do you do with that afterward when you have to go back to your life? How do we make sense of that? How do you integrate it into your choices so that you can feel like you're living in alignment with your purpose, your values, your direct communication with the divine? These are difficult questions. Yeah. So do you cover these kind of ideas in your newsletter or, or what, what, is, what has been like the focus? Yeah, to a degree I do. Um, the, the newsletter has two different series. Uh, so there's an issue that goes out every Wednesday and an issue that goes out every Sunday. The Wednesday issue is a lighthearted review of the past week's news and psychedelic research, policy, and business. So there'll be one feature story in each of those pillars that I break down in plain language. So something that was discovered in, uh, in the research front, something in the scientific realm, then something that has changed in the legislative processes generally, or maybe some, somebody's political take, something like that. And then the third bit is a business. For the most part, most of these businesses are operating in the medical side um, because, you know, that's where we are with legality. But eventually, you know, once these substances are more widely available without, you know, a prescription, then there will probably be consumer businesses as well. Hmm. That's the Wednesday issue. The Sunday issue is my opportunity for original reporting. And it's also the place where I'm pulling in my experience from Dharma Talk, being a podcast host. It's slightly different format. It's written, but I conduct interviews with different luminaries from the psychedelic space. My, my goal there is to just bring a diversity of perspectives in. So at, at the common thread is that they're involved in psychedelics, but there's a wide array of different ways that people are. It could be a venture capitalist who has a portfolio of companies in the biotech space that are doing psychedelic plays. It could be an indigenous healer with Mazatec roots who is serving in a ceremonial context. It could be, you know, a CEO of a business who is now offering ketamine therapy as a workplace benefit to his employees. 
So I try to really cover the gamut there and uh, expose people to, you know, all the different ways that psychedelics are finding their way into society. Yeah, no, it's super so integration is certainly like a, a topic that comes up there. Right, right. No, it's so interesting. I mean, that that's true. There's so many different like elements and convergences around that space. So I love that you're kind of like giving a platform of different, different ideas and different thought leaders in that area. That's super interesting. Awesome. So I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, so is there anything else that we haven't covered off on that you do want to share before we start to wrap up? I feel pretty good about what we've covered. Awesome. <laughs> I wanted to give that that question enough time to take it seriously. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I feel good. Awesome. All right. So let's get into our final questions then. Okay. Uh, so the first question is, how would you describe your current relationship to yourself? Is this, are these meant to be like fast? As fast as you can go, but like you can take a second if you need to. <laughs> I mean, that's a deep question. Yeah. My relationship to myself, I would describe it as dynamic. Uh, and and I don't necessarily mean like mood swings around self-confidence or that sort of thing. More that I try to retain a level of distance, you know, per the philosophy of yoga between who I identify as and who I present in the world. Um, and I think that kind of distance and understanding of the self being immutable and my personality or ego being uh, relatively dynamic um, gives me the flexibility to take chances and try different things. Mm, awesome. All right. What is something that you are currently working on? Okay. Um, since we already talked about Tricycle Day, I'll, ignore, I'll leave that one off the yes. table. Something that I'm currently working on is getting stronger mm. physically. So I've uh, started complementing my yoga practice with resistance training. I joined a gym, um, which I really love because it's not like a bunch of meatheads. No offense if somebody identifies as that. It's like more of a functional movement type gym. And they have an ice bath and an infrared sauna. And it just is awesome. I love it there. So I'm working on getting stronger. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so important with our yoga practice is like, kind of complementing the strength with the flexibility. So I, I definitely support that notion. All right. What do you consider most valuable to you right now? That would be my son. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like that was going to be an easy answer there. What is the best lesson you've learned recently? This is a lesson I've learned time and time again, but one that I that was reinforced recently is give to people uh, help people with no expectation of return. And even if you are incredibly selfishly motivated, you should still do this because more often than not, those favors come back around. Mm, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. How would you describe your purpose right now? I would say my purpose right now is to create a solid foundation upon which my newborn son, not newborn, he's almost a year old, but my new son um, can flourish. I believe that my fundamental purpose shifted when I became a parent and it shifted from doing best for me to doing best for him. Mm. And fortunately, I think a lot of those things are in alignment. Doing well for me will support him. Uh, however, the way I would describe it succinctly has changed as a result of it. And, and that's how I think of it now. Yeah, 
I love that. All right. And your final question is, what is the number one skill you believe everyone should work on? I'm going to go with focus. It's mm-hmm. severely lacking in, in, in modern times. And for all the reasons I described before, it gives you a huge leg up in everything that you want to do. So for that reason, I see it as an amplifier for your purpose, for your other skills, for anything that matters to you. If you're able to focus and truly be grounded and present in the things that you want to do, you will go infinitely further and will have, you will never regret focusing. I love that. Great answer. All right. Well, Henry, please share how people can get in contact with you these days so they don't have to go where's Waldo like I did. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The best way to find me is to, if you have any interest in psychedelics, um, definitely subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at www.tricycleday.com. As you mentioned, it's a free twice a week newsletter that covers the latest updates in psychedelic research, policy, and business. And you know, it's served up with a side of spicy memes. So if you're into humor, I can promise you that you will laugh. And as far as getting in touch with me, I am the person who writes that newsletter. I've got a a small team of like ancillary people who help me, but I do all of the writing and I manage the inbox. So if you respond to any of those newsletters, you will reach me. Very nice. Well, thank you again so much, Henry, for coming out of hiding and coming on my podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking with you on purpose and everything and and being able to I, I like to say I'm I'm like kind of carrying the torch of of Dharma Dharma talk into into this podcast. So thank you so much for everything. My pleasure and I appreciate you doing that. Um I hope that uh some of the listeners of Dharma Talk have found your show and uh and appreciate you picking up the torch. I certainly think it's awesome and I applaud everything you're doing. Hosting a podcast is not easy, but uh, it is very rewarding, and I and I hope that you appreciate that. Every single time, it's 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 a real blessing. So yes, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. it means a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of A Way of Thinking. I hope it has been a source of inspiration and guidance as you continue to navigate your path towards greater inner peace and purpose. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Your feedback helps us reach more seekers like you. And for those of you who are ready to take a deeper dive into your journey, I invite you to book a dream job discovery session with me, your host, Jessica Huang. It's an opportunity for us to explore how you can bring greater meaning and purpose into your career and life. Simply visit jessicahuangcoaching.com and schedule your session today. Remember, the power to create the life you desire resides within you, and I'm here to support you every step of the way. Until next time, embrace the journey, cultivate your inner peace, and never stop seeking your true purpose.